here with the Bumble Butt Podcast. I heard they shits last week, and I was like, yo, I gotta come. Oh, Meth, welcome, <laughs> welcome, Method Man, to the program. Uh, how how has it been? I heard you're working on a new How High movie. Wu Tang for life. <laughs> for life. WT. <laughs> You know who's good though? Mm-hmm. Method Man in uh, you The Wire. Know who's good though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cheese. Yeah, you go. Um, Prop Joe's nephew. Prop Joe's nephew. Betrays him. God, that's for Joe. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Marlo had to finish him off. No, wait. Mar- he no, did it on Marlo's a- orders. Yeah, absolutely. Who killed Cheese? Um, The soldier. Uh, it was a um, Barksdale boy. That's uh, the one that first put him on. That's who I first seen. That was Barksdale, homie, to put him on. Tall dude with braids. Oh, oh, yeah. um, Slim Charles. Slim Charles. Yeah. yeah, there you go. All right, yeah, I love Slim Charles. No, nah, he he's real. When he stands up in the uh, at the funeral home when Stringer's running the board meeting, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I think it's Waybase. Like Slim Charles has the floor. That's so fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, I love that motherfucker. He says he be saying some shit too. Gotta stand on that lie. Yeah. He wasn't no bitch, but he ain't want to be a kingpin either. Mm-mm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Bumblebutt Podcast X. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm joined by my new co-host and regular co-host, y- y- Herschel, rated R. Hello. What up, Bum? How you been? Good. Good. Was your week off uh, restful, restorative? Yeah, the week was uh, pretty good. You know what, man? It feels good to be back at the Bumblebutt studio. Got a couple you know days till you got to go yes. back to work. Yes. Hey, it's so peaceful just being back here, you know, just like laying back, stretched on a bed, eating butterscotch. Well, that's how we record. I mean, I don't know if actually. In our underwear, eating yeah, butterscotch, butterscotch. I mean, I don't, know if, I don't know if that's peace with everybody, actually. I don't even I don't even know the last time I had butterscotch was like the 1800s. I don't even know what butterscotch is. <laughs> the butterscotch candy. Like those, the the Werther's Originals? Yeah. The old people candy? Yeah. 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 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or from a, a warm grandfather's mm. pocket. Mm-hmm. One, or, one or the other. Last week we covered an international dictator and uh, military great. junta ruler. Which was okay. great. Mm-hmm. It was good. I yeah, loved it. Dude. Great. Mount Tamil Pius, nicknamed the Sleeping Lady, looms large over the Golden Gate Bridge, an immovable barricade San between San Francisco and the open Pacific Ocean. Very I know good. a little bit of shit. You're Mr. Geography well, over nah, here. Just, just, just look. Hold on, y'all. Let's wait. The mountain looks absolutely massive in its environment, but it's really an optical illusion because there are no foothills leading up to it. Mm. At its peak, it only measures about half a mile. For 5,000 years, there had been no recorded murders on the beautiful mountain. The first residents were the peaceful Tamil Native American tribe. They held it down for about 4,000 years, 
but never advanced past halfway up the mountain. The upper mountain was strictly off-limits, as it was full of spirits and timeless demons that knew nothing but hatred and pain. Ooh, we don't like that hatred and pain. Especially those uh, Native Americans. Like the they, Native they, Americans, man, they had the land snatched They're very them. spiritual. Mm-hmm. They believe in that land. Tamil Pius was a place of awe to the Tamil tribe. Balancing out the horrible demons were the lower mountains' almost limitless amounts of fruits, herbs, and game that could be harvested. Of course, as the settlers came, soon the eagles and elk disappeared, as did the antelope, wolves, condors, bears, geese, duck, salmon, steelhead, and then eventually, the Tamil people themselves. After the great San Francisco gold rush of 49 settled down, around 1897, the mountains were finally tamed by the whites who were not scared of a few little ghosts. Mm, they should have been scared of Casper. Fat so. Well, why would I be scared of a baby? Demon baby. Well, so if it's a ghost, I guess it wouldn't be a demon because those two things are... They're a little mutually yeah. exclusive, yeah. yeah. I guess if you're what, a ghost... I guess you're right. What is a fucking baby, ghost baby go do? Yeah, He's... what's it going to do? Say goo goo gaga? I mean, unless you had your own baby in the crib. Yeah, I guess you don't want two babies in nah, the crib. Nah, And I yeah. actually, I saw a video on this show called Paranormal Caught on Camera. Mm, those paranormal shows. The that EVPs. was a baby. It's always EVPs. <laughs> it's always EVPs. Yeah. Um, they showed a baby get picked up by the foot. Whoa. Yeah. Was it, do you think it was real though? See, that's the thing. I don't yeah. know if these people are tying fishing line to their yeah, exactly. baby's foot. So these white settlers, they ended up putting luxury mansions all up the mountain, as well as building a scenic, beautiful railroad for residents and vacationers. Several authors mm-hmm. would spend a lot of time on Tamil Pius, mm-hmm. soaking in its uh, natural beauty and drawing inspiration for in, their writings. In what year they actually put up the luxurious homes? 1897. Okay. 18, so right around a butterscotch era. I would say we're 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 nigh on butterscotch territory right, right. now. <laughs> In the summer of 1979, the beautiful mm. green and blue slopes would be splattered red after the first recorded homicide on Tamil Pius mm. occurred. Soon afterwards, a demon would stalk Mount Tamil Pius, mm. but not a timeless one, just a broken piece of shit human with bad eyesight. <laughs> on Tuesday, July 1st, 1960, David Carter Carpenter was driving his 53 Oldsmobile up and down Green Street in San Francisco. Mm. He had just turned 30, but the sparseness of his hair made him look 50. He had big, full lips, a pug nose with fully flared nostrils, and brilliantly hazel eyes. Mmm, I love hazel. Mmm. Carpenter finally saw what he'd been trolling for. His old acquaintance, Lois DeAndrade. Lois DeAndrade. Thank you. Lois Deandre. Lois Deandre. Deandre. D'Angelo. D'Angelo. She was walking to the bus stop to go to work at Foot, Cone, and Belding, which was an advertising firm that did business mm. with David Carpenter's employer, the Pacific Far East Shipping Lines. David started working for Pacific Far East eight years previous in 1952, fresh mm. from a stint in the Coast Guard. He was promoted quickly at the new job, going from lowly deck servant to the assistant to the vice president of operations by Damn. 1960. The, back in these days, you could be a go-getter. You mm, know? And not have to suck dick. I'll tell you who tried to do that and then ended up sucking dick was a little man named uh, JB slash from Walzer. Mm. <laughs> 
Lois, who had met David in 1958 and became friendly enough to go for coffee a few times and also come around David's place so his wife could cook dinner, heard Carpenter's brake squeal as he shouted out her name. She turned around, shocked, but when she saw it was David, she broke out in a grin from ear to ear. So it seemed like he was on some bullshit from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You f- you've activated my mm-hmm. trap card, Herschel. Mm-hmm. You know, I like activating trap cards. Mm-hmm. When she asked him what the hell he was doing all the way over on this side of San Francisco, David answered honestly. He couldn't remember where Lois lived and really wanted to find her, so he drove around until she left for the bus stop. That sounds like some creep ball shit, Yeah, bro. like that's disturbing from, no, from the beginning. David told Lois his wife had just given birth to the couple's third child, which was true, and he really wanted to introduce her to the baby. Mm-hmm. David's wife, Ellen, loved Lois and would often ask about her and try and set her up with available men she knew. Lois gently rebuffed David, saying she couldn't be late to work, but he convinced her by offering to drive her straight there after saying hello to the baby. He thirst mode. And preying on her not wanting to take the bus, which who wants to take the bus when you can get driven for free? Mm, that's true. From your pal. You know what, man? I learned the life, man. Take the bus. Take the bus, mm-hmm. bro, because you don't want to be on nobody else's time. Mm-mm. If you, you want to leave, you can leave. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to get on this bus, but I'm going to leave when I won't. As long as you have your bus schedule in your head. You're fine. You're not beholden to anybody. Mm -hmm. She looked at her watch exasperatedly and got in the passenger seat. Those who knew Carpenter considered him a peaceful and pleasant man, but he did have a reputation for being sexually aggressive. Mm. Numerous associates, co-workers, and family friends had to fight off his sexual advances over the years. So they just been kind of knowing it's happening and just really just, oh, okay, it's fine, it's... You know Just how stay it is. away from them. You know how it is. No, you people need to get love that dude their... out of there, dude. That dude needs to be out of there. Like I said, that 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 rapey shit is not cool. People love making excuses for pieces of shit. Carpenter had gotten married five years ago in 1955. He lived with his wife and now three kids in Pacifica, California. He was prone to flying off into horrifying rages, which were fueled by his unquenchable sexual desires, money problems, and the inability to communicate due to his severe stutter. That's a bad combination. It's no money and you got a stutter? Mm-hmm. Man, dude, these women are like, no thank you. Mm. The stutter only got worse with anxiety and tension. If he was forced to converse with an authority figure, he wouldn't be able to get a single word out. Attempting to suppress this problem only haunted and enslaved him. When he was alone, talking to kids, singing, or whispering, he could keep talking uninterrupted with not even a hint of a stutter for days. But as soon as something triggered his anxiety, it was game over. One of his one of his employers noted this about him. He had no difficulty in getting along with other people except for his terrific temper due to his impediment whenever he had to handle public relations at the company. As Lois and Carpenter continued their drive, David spoke glowingly about his wife. The truth was, Carpenter was miserable in his marriage. On the surface, him and Ellen had an ideal leave-it-to-beaver life. <laughs> Ellen stayed home, didn't drive, and David picked out their homes and made all the decisions. <laughs> that was a good show, man. 
only one thing was keeping Carpenter's intense rage at bay, and that was sex three times a night from Ellen. That guaranteed that the worst parts of David's personality would remain hidden. Like all band-aids, this too would eventually fall off, and if the wound underneath is still open, you didn't fix anything. I guess there's not really nothing wrong with three times a night, though. I mean, depending on the person. Yeah, if it's a healthy, regular relationship, yeah. and you guys decide you want to have yeah, sex three times a night. It's like she's being forced to have three, sex three in times In order to stop him from beating the fuck out of her and the kids. Damn, that's sad. It just makes me feel so... Well, that uh, coerced thrice nightly sex stopped working and David began blacking out in rages, not knowing who or what he'd committed violence against. David kept driving Lois down the road. Lois insisted that this was already taking way too long. She needed to get punched in to avoid getting fired. David just couldn't seem to remember where he left his wife and newborn baby. That's when Lois realized there was something wrong with David. His speech was slow, deliberate, and perfect. Not a hint of stutter. He kept driving into a heavily wooded area and made twists and turns. It seemed to Lois he was driving around aimlessly. And now she had no clue where they were. That boy knew what he was doing. He's so calculated. He is sly like a fox. And we'll get there. At about 9.30, military police officer Jewel Wayne Hicks noticed a 53 Oldsmobile circling the Army installation. Mm. He hopped in his Jeep and uh, went to assist the motorist get back to civilization. This happened a couple times a week where people would get lost in the woods mm-hmm. going off on a pleasure cruise, end up circling the Army base because they don't know where the fuck they are. Hicks lost the Oldsmobile around a corner and Carpenter pulled it to a stop in front of a white bunker-type building down an alley that had a great view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. David said, Oh boy, I think I'm really in trouble. He had a frantic look in his eyes. Mm. The brilliant hazel was gone. They looked all the way black to her. Lois opened the passenger door and started getting out in a panic. David grabbed her around the waist, lightning fast, and kept her in the car, climbing over the seat to keep his weight on her from outside the passenger door. He opened the glove box and pulled out a knife and a length of nylon rope. Mm. He said, If you make any more noise or struggle, I'll kill you. I don't want to hurt you, Lois, but I have a funny little quirk that needs to be satisfied. Mm. Partially pinned to the seat, Lois saw him reach under and bring out a claw hammer. She knew this was the end, but then she saw headlights on the main road. With the knife still to her throat, she reached out and laid all her might she could on the horn, screaming. Mm. Carpenter lashed out with the knife, and Lois deflected it with her hand, Mm. severing the tendons on her fourth and fifth fingers. With her left hand, she got the door open and tumbled out into a crouching position and busted out into a run. David was on her in a few strides, swinging a powerful overhand blow with the hammer at Lois' head, which she once again deflected. This time, her watch and wrist were shattered. Unfortunately, Carpenter would not miss from here on out. Barely conscious and mostly blind, Lois was struck six total times with the hammer, right in the head, all while screaming. Jewel finally heard the screams and saw the Oldsmobile. He emerged from his Jeep with a riot baton out and his hand on his holstered forty-five pistol. As Jewel sprinted toward the problem, he could see a man straddling a woman and bashing her brains in. Even as the officer charged, commanding David to stop, Carpenter couldn't hear. He just kept striking. He needed to kill that motherfucker at that point. Put I couldn't down. agree more. Like, just draw and put shoot. Him, put him down. Because he's... He's rabbit. He's trying to kill. And he doesn't hear. He doesn't recognize. He doesn't know anything. It wasn't until Jewel was right on top of him that David swung the hammer at him and mm. then started running. After a few more shouts from Jewel, Carpenter gave up and stood still. 
Lois was still breathing, but it was slow, and her chest was making deep rattling noises with each breath. Officer Jewell marched David to the Jeep and radioed in for backup in an ambulance ASAP. David took out a fountain pen from his jacket and fired a thirty-eight caliber bullet at Jewell's head. All Hicks saw was a puff of smoke and a flash. He felt a searing pain on his cheek, and the shot had just grazed him. Mm. Relying solely on instinct and training, Jewell drew and popped three shots at David instantly. The first missed, but the last two found new homes in Carpenter's (laughs) leg and abdomen. You should have shot that motherfucker in the head. Just keep shooting. Just pull the trigger. Forever. Yeah, because he tried to shoot you at the... As soon as that shit grazed my cheek, I'm pissed. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, this was so fast. It was like he hit the button on the pen gun. It went off. Yeah. And before, like, he, like just as he saw the flash, he was already drawing and shooting. You know what I mean? Dude, I'm telling you. You would have said black on my eyes after that. Yep. All like, the oh, brilliance. Get off of him. Mm-hmm. Jesus. It's just a chain of, of vicious beatings one after the Dude. other. That's like rabies. He gave it to you. Now you're yeah. rabidly beating Man. the shit out of him. I would have fucked that motherfucker up. Mm. They would have they let you get away with it. Mm. They would have let you get, you would have walked. Yeah. And the rest of this fucking story wouldn't even need to happen if that would have yeah. happened. Lois was seriously hurt. She had a skull fracture that was depressed bilaterally. No, she wasn't dead. She was not dead. Dude, I was for sure she was a gunner. Yeah. There were three lacerations on each side of the skull from the six hammer blows that mm. connected. Just off first visuals alone. Dude, that shit just makes my thigh and knees quiver just to even think about it. Yep. It was like he spread them out evenly somehow, too. Her skull was shattered in identical places on each side. That's what a depressed bilateral fracture is. Like, there were six different shatter points. All right, Adam, that's okay. She was rushed to brain surgery. Small titanium plates were installed on both sides of her head, Mm. and portions of the skull were removed in order to promote new bone growth. She even underwent an operation to reconnect the tendons in her hand, but ultimately, that was unsuccessful. Mm. Carpenter was also hospitalized, but he was in the custody of the U.S. Marshals at San Quentin's prison infirmary. On August 3rd, 1960, Carpenter had recovered enough from his wounds to be transported from San Quentin to San Francisco City Prison to be charged with assault and intent to commit murder. Assault? No, that's uh, that's straight murder. This sounds like they try to let him off. Like, bro, that's... You that, slashed her and you beat her brains Because when you say in. assault, that makes it sound like, oh, it was just a fight. Right now, it's just assault and attempted murder. They make it a sound... Uh, well, attempt murder is, is bad. It's bad. But, I mean, Jesus Christ. He should have been. I feel like I don't really know the law like that. They need better nomenclature, like brute savage assault or something. They, some, bro. Yeah. The judge ordered two psychiatrists to confirm mental stability, and upon evaluation, both doctors testified under oath that David Carpenter was fit to stand trial. Judge Goodman, in charge of sentencing, commented on the disturbing brutality of the crime, mm. along with David's past sexual aggressiveness. Goodman read from the final psych report diagnosing Carpenter with a sociopathic personality disturbance. Mm -hmm. David was sentenced to 14 years in a federal prison as the crime took place on U.S. Army property. Oh, so that's why he was able to go to federal? That's right, instead of state prison. I feel like this dude's getting a slap on the wrist, man. That's a slap on the wrist, for sure. And we'll find out just how much. Carpenter was renamed prisoner number A28796-M and set about making himself a new home at McNeil Federal Prison in Washington State. He would serve only nine years before hitting the mandatory minimum for parole and being let out. 
As part of his probation, David had to attend group therapy sessions mm-hmm. twice weekly. David started going four times a week, and his PO saw this as a genuine attempt to solve his emotional problems. Of course, as we know about serial killers, uh, uh, right? David's no different. They're emotional manipulators. Yes. They'll, they'll do Social- exactly what you want. You just said it. Sociopath. Yeah, sociopathic. Exactly. That's so what that, they do. They exact, you got that 100% on that. They go I didn't manipul- put that together. Dude, they already diagnosed yeah, him. That's what you do. You're manipulative. You're going to say anything do to anything. get your... You'll yes. go to any lengths in order yeah. to make the person think you yeah, are what you want bro. them to think. Dude, I'm sorry. This slap on the wrist was good. What? Was the demons in the court system that day to help I him out? I think so. I think so. Yeah, they definitely still in the goddamn court systems. We ain't gonna get into that shit. We will, eventually. Oh, yeah. Right now we're in the I'm 60s. Holding my, I'm holding my one finger up. Hold that one finger yeah, up. Yeah, I see it. Will. High in the air. Yeah, high in the fucking air. Lightning might strike it. Ellen Carpenter immediately filed for divorce, writing the date of separation as July 12, 1960, the day of the attack on Lois. She was granted the divorce on grounds of cruelty and having grievous mental and physical suffering inflicted on her mm-hmm. at the hands of David. At these classes, he met an attractive typist named Helen, one letter different from Ellen, who was five years his younger and also a recent divorcee. Helen and David would marry four months later in August 1969. Bruh. <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, you know, my God, don't you... <laughs> He doesn't work there. There's one for everybody. There's someone for everybody, right, Herschel? He doesn't even... I see if they was co-workers. No, he was a patient. Yep. You got that right. What the fuck? It's you like crazy uh, motherfuckers? You think you're going to change Harley Quinn. Helen was a naturally anxious woman, and being married to David drove her to the edge of a nervous breakdown by January. <laughs> she took a trip to Hawaii with her gal pals to unwind, leaving David to drive around aimlessly. Mm-hmm. Without his three times nightly sex sessions, David's pressure was rising, was and his up. self-control was eroding at an alarming rate. He was definitely wound up. So he began to make plans to deal with the impending internal crisis. He didn't have no money, he couldn't throw no prostitutes. He didn't want prostitutes. He hated women. He wanted to, he wanted to like control and hurt them. Because he hated them so much. We'll find out why in a, in, a, in a little bit. It's his mama. Cruising along on Highway 280, Carpenter spotted a nice-looking young woman driving in the other direction. He flipped a U-turn and ran her car off the road. She fled her vehicle and into the undergrowth of the roadside forest to hide. David yelled in a cold, clear voice to come out, but nobody answered. He waited, listening for movement, but only heard the dry pine needles rustling in the wind. Finally, Carpenter got back in his car, drove on southward along the edges of small towns, mm, yeah. still hunting. So that, that, she got away. She got away. Well, she hid very fucking good. She stayed very still. She already knew what was what's up. She knew that that guy definitely ran her off the road, yeah. Purposely. Mm-hmm. This dude is, is, I'm glad she got away. That fish got away. That fish got away. But, yeah, unfortunately, but he, he there's plenty wait, of fish in the yeah, sea. And he couldn't wait. No one, how long did he wait? Pro- I think the the research said about 20, 30 minutes. Dude, that's a long time. Yep. He stood there like a fucking sentinel. They for... better be glad they had fucking um, smartphones back then. That shit would have been blowing up. I don't know who has that ringtone. But... Uh, 1969 people. Yeah. <laughs> By now, David was downright desperate and he saw taillights in the distance. 
The driver was 19-year-old Cheryl Lynn Smith, who was on her way back to her parents' house. She looked up in time to see the speeding vehicle in her rear view, but not soon enough to avoid being rammed from behind. David, unshaken by the collision, reached out and grabbed the knife he'd been using to cut salami earlier. Cheryl's car was nose-first in the deep ditch. Her rear wheels were spinning uselessly just off the ground, only succeeding in kicking up clouds of dust. She yelled from the driver's seat, What the fuck? Are you drunk or something? Carpenter didn't answer. He just walked slowly, pretending to appraise the damage done to both vehicles. Cheryl Lynn got out of her car to inspect the damage, and while her back was turned, Carpenter grabbed her by the neck. I want to rape you. I'll have to kill you if you scream or don't come with me. David dragged Cheryl up the incline, away from the road, and ripped her clothes off. In an effort to escape, Cheryl tried throwing herself backwards down the hill. Mm. Carpenter lunged lightning quick with his knife and slashed with such anger. Damn. He froze. His slash had cut the muscles in the poor woman's right arm. It hung worthless at her side, and she could feel other wounds in her left hand clogging with dirt as she climbed her way down the hill. David easily caught up with the bleeding woman and grasped her forearms. According to Cheryl, his face was completely changed. He was warm and kind with brilliant eyes, not like the dead black eyes she'd just been slashed by. He wrapped her in his coat and said, Look, you're bleeding. I'll follow you and bandage you up as long as you promise not to call the police. Was she obliged? She said, Fuck you, and dove into her car under her own fading power and drove until she saw the nearby angelic lights of a Boulder Creek hotel. And she screeched into the parking lot. A beast. A beast. A true beast. She said, Man, fuck you. Yeah. And that knife you got. Oh, shit. Fuck you and your salami (laughs) knife, you bitch. Yeah. I'm out of here. Her attacker, keeping his unwanted promise of following her, got scared when she turned into the brightly lit parking lot and sped away, but not before Cheryl Lynn jotted down his plate number, YIY104, California. They're always from California. All of these fucking freaks are from California, Herschel. Mm -hmm. All of these fucking freaks Mm -hmm. are from California. Is that because they have the biggest population? Probably. Mm, that probably could be a part of it. And that's probably why it's so, the and only... It's warm. You can pull your dick out if you wanted to. Yeah, you can be like you a vagabond on the street. Because if you was a candidate and tried to pull your You'd dick freeze out... freeze to death. Yeah, probably wouldn't get up. Cock could fall off. Yeah. Frostbite. The warm weather. Cockbite. A doctor was called to the hotel. Cheryl Lynn was found to have a deep three-inch wound on her right tricep, which is what disabled her right arm, and a cut that started at the palm and almost went entirely through her left hand. She would be hospitalized for the next five days. That's it? It's, <laughs> these chicks are tough, man. Yeah. Carpenter, meanwhile, returned to his apartment, removed his blood-splattered clothes, and left them in a heap on the floor. He packed a bug-out bag with fresh clothes, a hunting knife, a flashlight, and a length of electrical cord. He knew it wouldn't be long before the police ID'd his car. Just then, his door started banging. It was SFPD, and he lit out the back of his apartment and jogged all the way to Daly City, which is about 10 miles away. He slept in an abandoned house and in the morning hitchhiked to Santa Cruz, getting out near some woods on the edge of town. He walked into the tree line and after a stretch could see a long white tendril of smoke rising from a chimney in the distance. It was 2.30pm when the homeowner, Mrs. Wilma Joyce McDonald, returned home with her two kids, aged 7 and 3. 
When she walked in, she was shocked to see her husband in his robe sitting in the Lazy Boy with his 16-gauge shotgun in his lap. But it wasn't her husband. The man hopped up and pointed the gun at Wilma and the kids. I'm wearing the robe because that bitch last night got excited and there was blood all over the place. He made that's that's how he started the conversation. (laughs) Nothing else was said. Like, what the fuck is you talking about? He just hopped up from the chair, pointed the gun at him and said that he made the mom and sons lay face down on the floor. Eventually, he sent the boys to their rooms and made Wilma accompany him out to her car. She drove David to an empty cabin that the Carpenter family had owned in the 1940s near Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. He had set up a small base of operations in the shack. David raped Wilma in the cabin and told her to keep her hands behind her back the whole time, and she wouldn't even get a bruise. After the rape, his mood shifted to a kind and gentle man. He apologized profusely as he drove her back home in her car. He went inside her house with her, stole her husband's jacket and hat, got back in her car, and drove away, shouting behind him, I'm sick, I need help, I'm lonely. <laughs> and he did, oh, okay. Oh, okay, sounds good. Yeah. Thanks for raping me. Yeah. And stealing my husband's stuff yeah. and my car. I'm just gonna do, go make some shake and bake. I gotta go explain this to my seven yeah, and three-year-old now. At 8.05, the following... Bitch-ass bomber flying yeah. over <laughs> with the girl on the side yeah seriously the pinup yeah. <laughs> at 8.05 the following morning 25 year old Sharon O'Donnell was attacked by Carpenter in her apartment's parking garage sticking a rifle in her face he forced her into his stolen Mercedes and tied her hands while David was in the process of swapping out the license plates Sharon got free and ran screaming from the garage <laughs> this dude gets getting he keeps fucking up and he's getting saved from the fuck ups like he's letting them get away right like he's fucking up all shit like oh I mean he's a he's a he's a numb nuts he's a real numb nuts in the wrong profession <laughs> <laughs> In a panic, David stole her car and fled from the scene, abandoning Wilma's Mercedes with a bloody knife, a bloody flashlight, and a bloody brown electrical cord tied on one end into a slipknot still in it. For days, David stayed in the woods. He'd lost his nerve after these failures, and he abandoned Sharon's car in Calaveras County. Mm -hmm. On February 3rd at 11.05 a.m., Lucille Davis, a cleaning woman for an opulent family, opened the door to her employer's home after the bell rang. Looking at her was the barrel of a long pistol. David tied her to a bed, stole her $3 and her car, and left her there tied up, thankfully unraped. Why would he want to rape? He's probably just looking for cash at that point. Cash in a car. Wants to put some miles in between them, yep. I don't have time to rape. Yeah, yeah, this one doesn't fit my schedule. Yeah. 45 minutes later, a 25-year-old housewife named Barbara opened her back door, expecting her husband with an armload of meat from the butcher. Pointing the pistol at her, David forced his way into her home and demanded every key and any money she could find. David grabbed Barbara's infant son, and they all got in Barbara's car. He forced her to drive to an area known as Sheep's Ranch, where Carpenter had another little camp set up. She was instructed to remove all her clothes, and then David raped her. While getting dressed, David was sweet and quiet and asked Barbara to drop him off on the outskirts of a little town called Oakdale. Mm. While in the passenger seat, David kept bouncing the little baby on his knee and singing songs and talking baby talk to him. He was enthralled. He even said, It's been a while since I've seen a baby this small. Finally, 
He had the mother drop, and thankfully, he had the mother drop him off on the side of the road, and he hoofed it the rest of the way from there. Talking to investigators later, Barbara would say, I remember him as quite kind. He was especially gentle with my baby. Was he gentle with you? That's the thing. After after she told about the horrific part of it, yeah. Mm. She was like, his eyes changed, just like the other victims. His eyes changed back to normal, and he was a whole different person. Like, he became more handsome. He became gentle, kind. That's that demon. That's the demon, man. That's mental demon. Though Carpenter seemed panicked and chaotic, mm-hmm. these attacks were calculated. Carpenter always had a magic bag of tricks with him full of weapons, disguises, mm-hmm. gags, handcuffs, and always a knife. When he took these women, he already had the whole scenario set up and ready for his Did crimes. Did they get the Joker? Does this is when they created the Joker? This had to be. Well, he was created in the 40s, right? I think oh, the so. Joker? Oh, I think well, so, yeah. So he copied the Joker. I think so. Yeah, I guess so. Because your bag of tricks. I know. I know. It had a whoopee cushion in this shit. Yeah. Had a woman think he, she fart so she could turn around and he'd get her. Joker talks. You didn't fart, bitch. <laughs> One detective later would say, when he's through with his rape, it's like Superman going into a phone booth. He comes out with new clothes, a new identity, and walks right out of the area. David hitchhiked to Modesto and headed straight for the Greyhound station. At 8.30 p.m., Stanislaus County deputies spotted him and placed him under arrest, taking him to Calveras County Jail to await his pending rape charges. Although rape was his favorite crime, it was also his biggest fear. He was terrified of the holding cells that would house up to 30 men at a time. Not only the rape, the strong take everything they want by force in jail. If you try to do anything official about it, you're branded a snitch and given a big old target on your back. What does it matter? You're a rapist. He was trying to hide that so much while he was in there. Because obviously rapists get raped. It's gonna come out. Yeah. Rapists get raped in jail. That's Mm. how that works. On Monday, April 27, 1970, David led an escape of himself and four other inmates. They cut through the cell doors and climbed out a skylight before easily vaulting an outer perimeter fence and scampering into the woods. Who created this idea? David. He was so afraid to not get raped. And he didn't want to be in prison no more. (sighs) The five convicts reconvened in the woods when they thought they'd lost their tails. David tried convincing them that he was actually the Zodiac killer, but not even his jailbreak buddies believe that. They laughed right in his mouth. They laughed right in his mouth, yeah. Like, dude. (laughs) You're too wacky. You're a little bitch. Yeah. Which he was. He was a huge bitch. It didn't take the bloodhounds long to get the scent of these smelly prisoners, and soon they were all back in custody. (laughs) On May 1st, a huge litany of charges were filed against Carpenter, split into two columns. The first column had two counts of armed robbery and one count of kidnapping, along with lesser charges. The second, one count of grand theft auto and one count prison break with a bunch of lesser charges. Mm -hmm. For the first column, Carpenter was sentenced to 25 to life. And column two got him five years, six months to be served consecutively after the first column. So he, he's got to do 30 years, six months before he can get out. Judge Huberty had this to say at the sentencing. I believe this man to be an extremely dangerous and should be incarcerated for a substantial amount of time. For life. For life. Kill him. How about yeah. that? Because you manipulated the courts at first. Manipulated everybody. Well... Just the law side of it. Mm -hmm. You manipulated the courts. We knew you was a psychopath. That Mm. was on us. Let you out. (laughs) 
but you're back now for pretty much the same goddamn thing. That's life. That's life. You were endangering lives, women. You're ruining lives. Yeah. I hate you, David Carpenter. Man, touching babies and shit. Like he's a president. Yeah. Yeah. Going around glad handing right after raping the baby's mom. That's ridiculous. Dr. Ralph Allison, psychiatrist, was given the court-appointed painstaking job of building a complete psychological profile of the 40-year-old David Carpenter from childhood to the present day. Mm -hmm. David was the middle of three children born to Francis and Elwood Carpenter. They were strict, demanding parents that seemed to love the older and younger children far more than David. Mm. He first started stuttering at age seven, and instead of helping him seek treatment for it, his mother Frances forbade it, and the impediment was a cause of great shame to the family. David was a natural lefty, but was forced by his parents and teachers to convert to right-handed. Fighting this disadvantage, David also had remarkably poor, untreated eyesight. When David was four, he described his home life as hellish. His mother was unloving and domineering in the home. It got so bad that Elwood had to separate from her from, for a whole year. The parents mainly fought loudly and openly about how much of a freak David was and how much they hated his impediment. Mm -hmm. Francis would make several appointments with speech therapists, but when they got to the parking lot, she would make up some reason for not going in, or she would call and say they couldn't make it to the appointment because... David was being slow and pokey and wouldn't get ready. Uh, the truth was he was usually sitting in the hallway with his shoes on and everything ready to go. Mm -hmm. She just didn't want to fix him. That's fucked up. I wonder why. Well, because of this psycho bitch mom and because he was different and had a problem, he wasn't able to make friends in his formative years. He would be a nightly bedwetter until his mid-teens, which is another uh, sign of serial killer that's mm -hmm. going to happen. It's usually arson. Uh, killing small animals and bedwetting are the three that will. If if all three of those line up, you're you might be a serial killer. Ninety percent chance you're mm -hmm. gonna be a serial killer. At grade school, David got no relief from his constant torment. One teacher said he may have been the brightest kid in the school, but was constantly beaten because of the stammer, his reputation as a teacher's pet, and because he was a huge snitch. Francis forbade David from playing with the other children after school, and on the rare occasions she allowed him to have a friend over, they were only allowed to stay for 10 to 15 minutes before Francis was rudely kicking the kid out of the house. David's was a life of boredom. The only things he had to look forward to were ballet and violin lessons. Francis would send him to school every day with his ballet slippers and violin case, dressed in what could only be called a little Lord Fauntleroy suit, and the kids would beat the absolute shit out of him. That's bogus that they would fuck with him over his clothes, but his parents not helping him out. Well, then he would come home with scuffed up clothes from getting jumped, and his parents would take their turn beating the shit out of him. David would secretly take out his aggressions on small neighborhood animals, hiding them under the crawl space. His life continued the same shitty cycle until one day in 10th grade, he ran away from home into the mountains to the same family cabin he would eventually force Wilma to take him to later. Dr. Ralph Allison traced the beginnings of David's legal troubles to the age of 12, where he got his first assault complaint. At 14, Carpenter was committed to Napa State Hospital for undisclosed sex crimes. At 17... David was sentenced to the California Youth Authority for molesting an 8-year-old boy and 3-year-old girl who were cousins in a park. He forced them into the bathroom and told them if they didn't do what he said, he would stab them both and make his dog eat them. 
Damn. His juvenile records show a troubled teen, to say the least. Five sex crimes and three facility escapes before the age of 18. Let's go back to the future. On May 21st, 1979, David met the parole conditions and was released to the Reality House, which was a halfway house transitioning prisoners back into the world. So, 30 years, 6 months turned into 9 years. And then he met the parole conditions again and was able to get out. Mm-hmm. After brutally raping two women and kidnapping them. And right. The prequel. Nine yeah. fucking years. Another nine years. That's all he had to spend in jail. Was nine more years. It's not enough. Carpenter was under certain restrictions. The one he hated the most being curfew. He had to be in his room by 11 p.m. And the door would be locked until 6 a.m. Unless you had a job that started earlier. Mm-hmm. Etta Kane was a 44-year-old married Bank of America executive who had recently, with her husband, abandoned the hustle and bustle of Hollywood for that NorCal vibe, bro. Etta was an avid hiker and was absolutely in love with the trails on Tamil Pius. Mm -hmm. Her husband, John Kane, was about 15 years her senior and walked with a hobble due to advanced arthritis. There's nothing he wanted more than to accompany his wife on this beautiful Sunday, August 17th. 1979. John kissed Etta and watched as she puttered down the driveway in the couple's VW Rabbit. Before she left, John asked her to please return before nightfall, not because of other people, but because there had been bear sightings near the east peak of Tamil Pius. I'm gonna come looking for your ass if you don't come back. Well, as soon as dusk light switched over to dark, John called the sheriff's office. The police searched the trails with flashlights and dogs all through the night, But without full light, it couldn't be considered a thorough search. They were just doing what they could until dawn, basically. At first light, rangers discovered the VW rabbit right where it should have been at the hike-in point. At 1.30 p.m., one of the dogs began sniffing and pulling at his harness to get into some underbrush. He had found Etta. She was in a kneeling position, face down. A large caliber bullet had been fired directly into the back of her head. Mm. All her clothes and personal belongings had been removed from the scene completely, except for one sock which remained on the woman's foot. There was no evidence of sexual assault, but oral sex could not be ruled out. Pretty much she wasn't going, sound like, if she killed her. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Put a forty-four in the back of her head. On August 20th, 1979, the day after Etta Kane disappeared, Dave Carpenter showed up to his speech therapy class, as usual, in Oakland at 5.30. Mm. David was to be fully released on a live-out status from Reality House, meaning he only had to check in in person once every 24 hours and didn't have to stay overnight anymore. He was officially declared rehabilitated September 6th, 1979. His lead counselor wrote this in the report. David has made such great strides in his rehabilitation. He is society's best risk to return. His days of criminality are long in the past. This this story is really pissing me off. It should. It should. It really should. Because how does he... Manipulate. He tells these paper pushers exactly what they want to hear, and they say, God damn, we really did our job, and they pat themselves on the back and say, We fixed another one, boys. Get them out of here. On Sunday, October 21st, which is, you know, a couple months after his full release, Mary Frances Bennett was attacked while jogging in Lincoln Park in San Francisco. She was stabbed over 25 times and buried in a shallow grave covered with dirt and twigs. Mm -hmm. That same evening, Carpenter checked himself into Marin General Hospital with a deep cut on his left hand and several lesser cuts on both hands. 
He told the doctor he was bitten by a dog while hiking, so he was bandaged, given a tetanus shot and a bottle of antibiotics, and sent right back out the door. So the doctor doctor should know if that's a bite or a cut, right? I mean, yeah, you would think so. Like, if you would think that a salami knife would make uh, more distinct cuts than like a jagged mm-hmm. dog's mouth would, right? You should kind of know what you're looking at as a doctor if it's a dog bite or a cut. And this motherfucker lying, lying through his teeth. It's like you almost got to report that to the police, right? Or no? I would. This motherfucker came here talking about dog bites. This shit wasn't dog bites. Herschel, you've activated another one of my trap cards. Barbara Schwartz was a young and pretty organic bread maker looking for a small Mm. home as near as she could to Mount Tamalpais, the mountain that had entranced her since the first time she laid eyes on it. Fortunately for her and the not exactly lucrative organic bread market, the median price for a home in the area adjusted for inflation, was $600,000. She settled on a little cabin a few miles from the mountain. She loved hiking the trails with her black lab and, like everyone else, was genuinely afraid to hike alone after Edda's death on the mountain. Mm -hmm. As the months passed on and on, she started getting back on the trails with less worry, and then everything was back to normal. As she was four hours into an eight-hour hike, she sat down in a beautiful grove of redwoods and rubbed her tired legs down. She felt the hairs on the back of her neck raise up. She knew someone was watching. She did everything she could to look casual as she she looked around the forest <laughs> clearing and caught a glint. Hey, stretching his- that's that's what I was thinking as I was writing this. <laughs> hey, who that? <laughs> hey, start screaming people's name and shit. Hey, I'm right here, Jake. Yeah, Jake, come over here. You don't see me? I'm glad you showed up, Jake. Yeah. Motherfucker looking to see you run. <laughs> From State Farm, too. <laughs> As she was observing, she saw the glint of a man's glasses and the shadow of someone behind a tree. The man came out of the shadows and towards Barbara. Coming up the trail was a third hiker, Jan Christie, who didn't know either of them, and saw the following scene. A tall, athletic man emerged from the trees and walked towards Barbara like he knew her. Jan saw a glint of something shiny, and then she saw it was a knife being repeatedly plunged into Barbara. Jan screamed, and after a few more stabs, the attacker ran off into the forest. Jan booked it for help, with Barbara still breathing raggedly in the clearing. She returned with the police... But unfortunately, Barb had passed. Mm. The deputy on scene counted 17 stab wounds, most in the throat and breasts. Barbara had instinctively thrown up her hands in defense and grabbed the blade, which David ripped back, cutting three fingers off. Mm. Also found at the scene were a pair of eyeglasses that did not belong to the victim. Mm. At 7.10 p.m., Carpenter drove to the San Mateo Hospital ER. The doctor treated a huge gash on David's hand and asked him how it happened. Carpenter lied and said there was an attempted robbery at the 7-Eleven and he had thwarted it. Because it was the result of a violent crime, the doctor was forced to report it to to the the police. police. There you go. You fell right into my trap card, Herschel. Well, at least this doctor was fucking smart. Yeah, or at least a teensy bit ethical, maybe. That's probably, good, too. Probably was a woman doctor, too. Ooh. You know, she ain't playing. She, woman woman play. doctor don't play. They don't play. That's why I use them exclusively. Mm-hmm. Like, get your shit in order. You need to stop fucking eating all this salt. Like, damn. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Then they treat you nice at the end. Mm-hmm. They give you a sticker. Yeah. 
The police came and grilled David for about four hours before deciding his story was fine. They never even checked in with the 7-Eleven, which would have, it hadn't been robbed or attempted to be robbed in over a year. Bad police work. On Monday morning, March 10th, two days after Barbara's murder, David went to an optometrist named Dr. Donald Wright to get a new pair of eyeglasses on the double. The optometrist right away knew something was off with the guy. He was too quiet, too cagey. He really left an impression on the doctor, who even remembered the strength of David's unusual prescription off the top of his head. Mm. The San Marin Sheriff's Department were also marveling over the odd prescription. As a rule, all prescriptions for individuals are kept on file with the doctor, mm. and many times the frames are custom contoured to fit the wearer's head. More importantly, the ID code on the side of the frames marked the glasses as property of California prisons. The cops knew that these belong to someone on parole. Mm -hmm. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Cool. For the stunning conclusion of David Carpenter, the trailside killer. Or, how does this idiot keep getting away, killer? Herschel, I've been doing this show for, what, three years and change and, now? And, and they always get away? I don't know how. They always, they always fool do. everybody for the longest time and rack up huge body counts. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how. I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. Like looking he's back on it, handedly making the statistics just go up. Yeah, and that California Youth Authority, that thing I mentioned, he was in for eight months for raping those yeah. two cousins. Every serial killer we've covered that came from California spent time in the California Youth Authority, which is Does like a juvenile exist? prison. Oh, I, I'm not even sure if it still exists. I just know Kemper was there. Eight other dudes were there that we covered. Manson was there for a while. But Manson's not a killer. He's just a dude. Well, Herschel, what did you think of David Carpenter Part 1? Has to be the most psychopathic, getting away with dude. He has this gift of gab that somehow just keeps slipping away. Somehow he does. Somehow he does. I mean, he's definitely doing years, though. He's doing... But that's not enough. And it's not rehabilitating him even in the slightest. Okay, so, so far he did... 18 years. years. 18 years. And not consecutively. Mm -hmm. Nine and nine. Nine and nine. He did nine of a fourteen, and then nine of a thirty. And that, and that's the thing—the federal. That was a federal. I thought federal, you do all of it. That's what I thought too, but I don't know. Come on now, some some's fishy. Some's fishy. You think he's a deep state agent? You think he's a Jason Bourne? We gotta finish hearing the story. All right, I guess we'll finish hearing yeah, we, the story next week yeah. on Bumblebutt Podcast yep. X. X, my dudes. Herschel, thank you very much for joining me. My name has been Adam. That's been Herschel. Thank you, Herschel. Yep. All right, everybody. We will see you ne next, week, next week, and we will uh, we'll we'll definitely be closer to getting some other shows out there yep. for you guys, and uh, maybe we can start working on reopening that Patreon up and see what's going on in there. Get under the hood and uh, kick it around a little yep. bit. Yeah, put some oil in it. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. That's going to do it for all of us here at Bumblebutt Podcast X. 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 Uh, have a nice week, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye. 